Welcome, everybody, to the Resilient Podcast. My name is Neil Tan, and I'm your host today. We've got a fantastic guest, Joy Lamb from Binance. Welcome, Joy, to the podcast. Thanks very much, Neil, for yeah. having me. It's great to be here. It's awesome. I mean, Happy New Year. Yes, you know, it's Happy a- New Year, indeed. <laughs> yeah, 2024, it looks to be very exciting. So, you know, I, I know that you have a few different changes, and I think a lot of people have known you to be a partner over at Baker McKinsey, but you've recently made a change. So maybe you can give us a quick introduction and tell us a little bit about uh, your story. Yeah, sure. So I, um, as you said, was a partner at Baker McKenzie for just under two years. And before that, I was a partner at Sidley and I was doing a lot of work um, focused really on the digital assets space. So I would say since probably about 2018, you know, my practice moved from kind of traditional hedge funds and, you know, mm. PE funds to um, more focused on the digital assets space. So I was doing a lot of work for clients that were setting up funds that invest in digital assets, getting licensed with the SFC for various digital asset related activity. Um, And then last year, Binance approached me and said that they were looking to hire someone to be their new head of legal for the APAC region. Um, And at first, to be honest, I wasn't really convinced by it. I just kind of thought, I'm not sure that's the right opportunity for me. But, you know, after a bit of reflection, I just kind of thought, why not? You know, you only live once. And I figure if I didn't do it, it would probably be something that I would regret later. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I decided to to take the the plunge and I, I started just under two months ago and it's been um as you can imagine a pretty pretty hectic intense time but really really interesting right yeah i mean i i think if you kind of look at it it's like you're making a pretty big transition inside of you know going from outside to inside council you're you know making a transition inside of not maybe not so much the sectors or the markets and so forth but you know moving from you know baker to a binance platform and at the same time, the way that the markets are going right now, I mean, it must be super exciting. Like, like what other things are happening for you inside of that role? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, I mean, part of, I think, the appeal for me really was, as an industry, we are at such an inflection point. You know, mm-hmm. we've had, what, 15, just, just uh, recently, right, the 15-year anniversary of, of Genesis Block. And, and, you know, in that time, there's been so much growth and evolution but we're really at I think a very pivotal time for the industry um, as well as for finance itself to to be honest Um, you know we've got more regulation coming in we've got digital assets starting to be adopted more more broadly we've got institutions now knocking on the door so I do think that you know it's just a very very exciting and dynamic time for the industry overall um, particularly here in Hong Kong which I guess we can we can chat about more later but you know it's it's really when I look at the opportunity and the change that I've made a really big part of it for me has been looking at this as just an immense opportunity to learn because when you're sitting in the law firm and you're the advisor the clients come to you when they have a specific goal or a specific problem and you help them to figure out you know how do we get from a to b and you know what are the ramifications and what do we need to be thinking about but then you kind of step back and you know you're not really involved necessarily in that entire process. So one of the things that really appealed to me was just the opportunity to go in-house to obviously work 
with the best people at the best organization in the space, but really have a seat at the table and be involved in everything from, you know, start to, to end. So that I think is just um, a very big change in terms of, you know, the way you, you work and the way you advise, but really just an, an amazing learning opportunity. Right. How did you get into this whole virtual asset space? I mean, was it just when you were at Sidley or you know at Baker, you said, you know what, I'm I'm really interested in blockchain, or I'm really interested in virtual assets, or it's just because the markets were coming to you, or people were knocking on your door? Was it more of your personal interest, or was it more of a market-driven or or firm-wide interest? I think that um, you know people ask me this question quite often, and I the the very honest answer is that. I think I was just lucky and I was in the right place at the right time. So I was promoted to partner in 2018. And you know, when you're a new partner, the firms kind of say to you, go figure out what it is that you want to do. Like, what do you want the focus of your practice to be? What do you want to be your niche? So they they don't necessarily put you under uh, sort of like a senior partner. They're just like, you're a partner now, go and hunt kind of thing, right? Um, yes and no. I mean, so so obviously there's always a group structure. There's always going to be someone who's more senior who is sort of the head of the group. But like within funds, for example, there are lots of different types of funds and you could be focused on the manager side. You could be focused on the investor side. It could be open-ended, closed-ended mix. It could be the regulatory stuff that flows from that. So there's a lot of different, you know, I guess, substreams that would fit under the funds umbrella. So I had been doing a lot of traditional, you know, um, private equity, VC, real estate, hedge fund work. And the the whole reason that I got into digital assets work is because um, a client who wanted to set up a real estate fund came to me in 2018 and said, oh, we want to tokenize our fund. Can you help us with it? And... I said, WTF, dude, what are you talking about? <laughs> Not said, literally. Yeah. He said, do you know anything about smart contracts? And I said, let me check with Google. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at the time, yeah. you know, it's not, I wish I could say I knew back then digital yeah. assets was going to be a big thing. But truthfully, I didn't. But because I was a first year partner, I just kind of went along with it because I thought, oh, it's something different. It's something interesting. You know, this guy seems like a really nice guy. I'm happy to help him. And, you know, there's there's part of me that is like I have intellectual curiosity. So I was, you know, when he mentioned it, I kind of thought, okay, well, maybe I'll just look into it and try to understand what's going on. Um, So that was really how it started. And it's interesting because back then, 2018, not long after the ICO bust, right, there was a lot of sensitivity around crypto in general for the reputational right. risk. And arguably, some would say that there still is, right? right. There's sure. still definitely segments or pockets of the market, of big firms, of, you know, everywhere, really, where right. people still think, oh, crypto, it's for, for money launderers or, or whatever. Right. So, you know, back then, the decision that I made quite intentionally was... I want to focus on tokenization of assets, of funds, mm. because they're securities, it's all regulated, it's much more similar to the structures and, and the products that we were already working on. Okay. Um, and, you know, the perception was that that didn't carry as much reputational risk as doing crypto work generally. Sure. But the interesting thing is that that, so that, first real estate fund, tokenized real estate fund that a client came to me about. That one didn't actually 
um, close in the end. You know, okay. we couldn't get that project off the ground. Right. But um, not long after that, I um, was introduced to someone else who was looking to set up a tokenized whiskey fund. Mm. And we actually managed whiskey. to launch that tokenized whiskey yeah. fund. Right. Yeah. Oh, you launched it? We launched right. it. So that was literally the first tokenized fund in Asia, which we launched, I think, in 2020. Mm. And... And then we had another client that uh, launched a tokenized Bitcoin-themed fund because they were licensed by the SFC, not able to, at that time, under those regulations, um, hold the Bitcoin directly. So it was a lot of synthetics and derivatives to kind of mimic the exposure to to Bitcoin. But again, tokenized fund. Um, And... You know, once once we had a few transactions that had been launched that were kind of in the blockchain space and people started to hear about it, right. it was interesting because a lot of people then thought, oh, you do something related to blockchain, therefore you must do everything yeah. <laughs> related to crypto. And I was inundated with so many requests. And honestly, for so many things, I just went, there's no way we can touch that. I'd be like, ah, sorry, we're probably not, not, the, best, not the best firm to help you. Try... Right. This other firm, in some cases, try this other jurisdiction. So it was like all these different sort of, you know, guardrails for even you to be inside of this practice, right? Yeah, correct, correct. So it was a very interesting journey. So, you know, really focused initially on tokenization of assets, Mm. funds, very traditional structures with a digital wrapper, all regulated as securities, and then, you know... I was inundated with all these random requests, a lot of which I just kind of batted off and said, you know, sorry, we can't help you. But the turning point really was when the SFC came out with its own kind of statements and circulars talking about how they wanted to, um, you know, start licensing the digital asset um, trading platforms and also... licenses. They already started talking to you, yeah. Yeah, so when when the SEC came out with that, they also at the same time came out with some guidance around, you know, distribution of funds that invest in digital assets. But importantly, they also came out with that specific licensing regime for the asset managers that are investing in digital assets. So that's when I kind of thought, okay, well, if the regulator is going to regulate people that, you know, are working directly in digital assets, then... You know, we as a group, we can also start um, helping these clients who want to get those licenses from the SFC to manage the investments in crypto Mm. and also to help set up those funds. So that's when it broadened from just tokenization of funds and assets to also include crypto in the sense of crypto funds, you know, crypto asset managers. Because, yeah, I mean, the minute that uh, the regulatory framework shows up, then you know, you as a law firm have uh, almost like a fiduciary requirement like you know, to kind of help. Someone's got to help them. Yeah, somebody's got to help them, right? Help so them. you're like, okay, you just raise your hand. But even back before then, I mean, before it's regulated, then they're looking at, okay, well, what's the current existing framework and how do we go around it, right? It's less about like compliance to the framework is more about getting around the framework per se. I'm not saying that you were doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what <laughs> that's what law firms do, right? They look at yeah, they look at opportunities, right? Yeah. That's a, that's what I would frame it yes. as. It's very tasty and diplomatic. <laughs> but so yeah, that's I mean, so basically the inflection point was you know tokenization. I mean, so you were basically doing RWAs back in the day to the extent that it was like 2018. So like. 
five, six years ago, right? I mean, it's been that long. Yeah, so you've been looking yes. at these different types of scenarios or these different types of cases, use cases. What, what has stuck? What hasn't stuck? I mean, from your previous experience, you know, maybe talk a little bit about the, the use cases that you've seen that really kind of picked up speed. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one one thing, I mean, really where we, where it started f for me was tokenization of funds. Um, and, you know, in the last couple of years, obviously, we've had the regulator and the regulatory framework kind of developing and trying to catch up to what the market wants to do. But because we haven't had a large number of um, licensed trading venues right. like for secondary trading and you know we haven't had a lot of distribution channels there ha it has been i think quite um, challenging for some people who want to launch those types of products and offer them here in Hong Kong. And I think what we've seen really is a lot of people using the fund structures because of the way the licensing regime actually works. There are some um, exemptions from licensing um, for you know the distribution activities that Type Nine asset managers right. are able to rely on. So I do think that you know, in particular, tokenization of funds will continue to be something which um, I think investors will um, find quite appealing because, in in one sense, like it's a fund, and we're just saying. Your, your your interest in the fund is represented by a digital token rather than a, a paper share certificate, right. Yeah, right. right? So that, I think, conceptually is much easier for people to understand and they can right. get comfortable with it because at the end of the day, it's still going to be a licensed asset manager that's managing the fund. So I do think that is um, a, an easy kind of entry point for a lot of people that are newer to um, you know this whole new world of, of digital assets and obviously it's, right. it's a really broad spectrum and and that is just you know one kind of very narrow very specific part of it but mm. I do think that that is a key gateway I think for onboarding new um, new participants in the digital asset ecosystem right because right. it's it's something that everybody understands whether it's the regulators, whether it's the actual uh, investor groups, I mean, it's something that they already understand very well, right? So, exactly. And they exactly. can participate that way or figure out the allocations. Like, all right, well, how do I deal with like the volatility and things like that? Nobody, knows, you know, there's there's different methods to do that, but then it's very uh, different applications for different asset classes and things like that, right? So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Where do you see this uh, sort of like the RWA space going? I mean, you know, uh, aside from funds, I mean, outside of what you were practicing, yeah. you know, were you getting a lot of different requests for other types of assets, aside from alcohol, <laughs> <laughs> real estate? Yeah. Were you getting a lot of uh, like more interesting, more more unusual requests? Or there were there definitely were some requests which I would call exotic. Um, yeah. there, there okay, were... there you go. Yeah, that's a. That's why you're a lawyer and you can choose those or you can find that inside of your vocabulary. But yeah, go yeah. exotic. Yeah, yeah for sure. Look, um, some interesting ones that, so, I mean, whiskey real estate funds. Um, there were a couple of people that wanted to tokenize the revenue stream in racehorses. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Which is um, a little bit different. Um, we also had people talking to us about tokenizing um, art. 
sure. diamonds. Yep. One thing that I wanted people to do, but no yeah. one did it. Yeah. I I said to a client, we should tokenize a Birkin fund. What? <laughs> Birkins oh, have true. been performing so well. Yeah, they're, right. they're like really like a, <laughs> an exotic asset class, but they've done really well. Right, right. So tell, actually, tell tell <laughs> the audience what's what is the Birkin? Like, so everybody will understand what this. <laughs> This leather, good, no, this luxury item would be. So, so, so Birkins are like the, you know, the, 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 the signature Hermes, Hermes yeah. handbag, right? right? They're very hard to get. You know, there's a waiting list in store. Like a couple of years, right? Yeah, a couple there's of years. Waiting list. Um, sometimes they won't even let you put your name on the waiting Why? list. They came they just, they're, super, they're, they're, they're super selective. They don't want just any random oh, person really? holding, you know, they're walking like, around give with me their your handbag. CV or something yeah. like this. I think like... you have to like earn. You have to like buy a lot of stuff in the store to kind of really? show your loyalty wow. and earn your spot. Right, right. So there's actually a lot of um, trading activity on the secondary market right. through, you know, websites like the Real Real and Fashion File and whatnot yeah. and consignment stores. That's so I think right. that is where most of or a lot of people actually. Um, purchase their their Birkins and other Hermes handbags. Mm. And then actually there's also like, you know, Sotheby's and Christie's, those auction houses, they have like a handbag auction every couple of months. Oh, I had no idea. And it's okay. almost always like 95% Hermes handbags. Yep. Um, and, and a big chunk of that is Birkins. So Birkins are like wow. hot, property. hot property. So I'm waiting for a client <laughs> to a Birkin come, fund. Come and find and join now. That is like nuts. I had no idea. Yeah, but I, I know that uh, like the secondary market for like Rolexes or high-end luxury watches is kind of like the same situation. Yeah. Is that they have a shortage as far as like inventory for for new ones, so yeah. there's like a huge wait list. But I yeah. never I never knew that about the Birkins. But yeah, those things are expensive straight out of the yeah. box, anyways. They right? are. So, they are. Like, they are expensive. expensive. But there's definitely like a markup or and a premium that you pay for getting sure. them on the secondary market. Yeah, just it's, it's so hard to get. Yeah. Yeah, the secondaries are, are more expensive than the actual primary markets, right? Yeah. It's like, wow. But, um, so yeah, switching gears, I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit about your own personal journey. I yeah. mean, you, you know, you're originally from... <laughs> Contentious question. Okay. <laughs> She's so. like, you're not, <laughs> you say it, I'm not going to say Revealing uh, my secrets. No. So, so, so okay. my, right, yeah. my parents were refugees from the Vietnam War. Wow. So they kind of, you know, were boat people. They fled Vietnam in the mid-70s. Um, they were in a refugee camp in Malaysia for in a Malaysia. while. Okay. And then they ended up um, being sponsored and, and immigrating to New Zealand. Right. So a lot of my Aussie friends don't know this, but I was actually born in New Zealand. <laughs> you heard it here. You heard it here. <laughs> the big reveal. A bunch yeah. of revealing. Yeah. Uh, big reveals a today. today. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was actually born in New Zealand, and then we moved to Australia to Sydney when I was four. Right. Um, and when we when we moved to Sydney, I I have these like very vivid memories. The very first night we were in Sydney, we were staying with. Um, my cousins, because my mum was actually one of ten, so she had a couple of oh, sisters already in that were already in Australia. Okay. So we were staying with um, one of her sisters, and they had kids, so there were two cousins who were, you know, one or two years older than me, so sure. kind of roughly the same age. But I remember that first night. That, well, you were four at that I time. Was four. You just arrived in Oz. Okay, literally yeah. just arrived. Yeah. And I remember that first night being teased the entire night by my cousins about my accent 
And the entire night, okay. they were asking me to say fish and chips, which of course I said is fish and chips. <laughs> and they thought it was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> that's cute. I mean, it's like, you know, all these different memories about that whole time. I mean, yeah. The idea is, it's like, you know, you still still in that spot, you know, immigrant moving over to a new place. You know, usually there's a lot of, like, uncertainty and, you know, trying to acclimate inside of it. So how, how did you kind of... You know, talking about the whole podcast, right? We're talking about resilience and yeah. how did you guys kind of move from there and kind of progress up inside of this whole space? Your family, yeah. yourself. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's really interesting. I I have like these kind of distinct memories, like that of that early period of like not wanting to go to school and my father being the soft softer one out of my two parents really? like he he would sometimes just be like oh, okay it's fine you know you can right. stay home and eventually i really? got over so it so he was think, like super he's yeah. like daddy's little girl kind of yeah kind, right, kind right, of right. so you know if i kind of really had a tantrum about something usually he would give him but my mother never would <laughs> my mother was always like no you know right, she right. was like the disciplinarian of, yeah. of the two um but you know i remember like early on you know there were some days where I just didn't want to go to school and I didn't mm. feel like I fit in but I think as a little kid you know those those things can just be kind of momentary they're just periods of time and you get over it right. pretty quickly and you know once I actually just got used to it I was fine and obviously you can tell from my accent now <laughs> completely <laughs> very <specific>. Australian <laughs> very, very Australian so yeah. when people ask you like where are you from you say Oz yeah, I say Sydney. Yeah, yeah. I say, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I did grow up in Sydney, right? Yeah, yeah, so, you know, I right. am very Australian culturally, not just my accent. <laughs> a lot of people but comment on a, my accent but, in Hong Kong. Okay, this is probably going to get me, like, crucified, but is there a huge <laughs> cultural difference between New Zealand and us? <laughs> I, I actually don't think there is, to, to be honest. I right. think, you know, in a lot of ways, there are a lot of similarities, and, and you know, the two countries are very close, and, mm. you know, I, I, I do think that... Um, yeah, culturally, there's not a lot of difference. There's obviously sort of the, the accent and whatnot. But right. I think, you know, looking back at, at, you know, all of the things that my parents did, I kind of think, well, I can't believe that they did what they did, that they endured mm. those hardships. And I think that, you know, for me, when people kind of ask me, or even like going to Binance, I think right. I told you before yeah. one person commented, like, did I take this role instead of buying a Porsche? Because I had a midlife crisis. But, but, you know, like one of the things is like when I have these, you know, points in time where I'm at a crossroads and I'm trying to decide what to do, you know, there's always that part of me that just kind of looks back at what my parents have done. Mm. And it just gives you perspective because it's right. like, you know what? What's the worst that can happen? Right. I'm never going to have to, you know, pick up and move to an entirely new country where I don't know anyone and I don't right. know the language and I have nothing, like right. not a penny to my name and right. start again. It's never right. going to be right. that kind of hardship that I have mm. to go through. And I think that, you know, makes me a little bit more willing to just do something different and to, you know, take chances and to explore right. and, and to see what will happen. And I think, you right. know, going back to kind of the, the finance conversation, like honestly for me, if I hadn't taken that, option i really think that in a couple of years time i would have thought oh what if like yeah. I, I really wish that i had done it because right. i think for me like i'd been at two you know major international law firms as a partner right. i knew exactly what my career would be if i stayed in private practice right. um and this was just a fantastic opportunity and frankly also 
I think, a better fit for what my priorities are at this point in mm. my life. Right. You know, my parents are still in Sydney. Yeah. They're getting older. They yeah. actually don't speak much English, despite yeah. the fact that they've okay. lived in, in Australia now for right. 40 years. They don't right. speak a lot of English. Wow. Um, so, you know, a big part of it for me is also the flexibility that you get at a place like Binance because right. they're fully remote. Yeah, so I can go find. home to Sydney anytime I want to oh, see right. them and I want to spend more time right. with them. Of course. Um, yeah, yeah, so that, that, that was also kind of a, a big part of it. So I think, you know, that that kind of hardship that they have been through, I think in a lot of ways, has informed just the way that I think about things because it's right. just a different perspective. And I think that right. sometimes, you know, we're all so busy with our lives and running around doing whatever and trying to get from A to B. And, right. you know, sometimes you can not lose perspective because I think that's pejorative and I don't mean it in, you know, kind of a, a negative way, but, you know, sometimes you can take a step back and think about, okay, what, you know, what, what are the, 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 you know, big things that are happening in the world and, you know, the real struggles that some people have right. and it just kind of gives you like a slightly different perspective when you're thinking about yep. things and, you know, trying to make decisions. Right. What 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 were your what were your parents doing actually in uh, in Vietnam? What kind of business were they in in Vietnam? So my mother's family, um, they actually they had their own business. So right. I think they had a business where they they were selling kind of you know chickens and, and eggs, and it was poultry. Okay. Um, and actually, poultry. like my father, um, you know, he he was from very humble background. Okay. And he actually was um, helping the U.S. Army. Right. in the Vietnam War. So when my parents decided to leave and then they ended up in this refugee camp right. because my father had been helping the US Army in the war, they had the option, do you want to go to the US or do you want to go to New Zealand? Right. Um, okay. And, and so, <laughs> so my mother, so, so right. originally I think they wanted to go to the US, but sure. because my mother was one of 10 and her parents oh, had also fled my mother was like but I want all of my family sure. to come with me Makes and sense. the US was like well we can't take everyone like right. if you guys want to come I see. it's just you two and your kids right got it um, and because they wouldn't kind of take the broader family right. my mother said well okay well in that case we're just going to go to New Zealand right. to be with you know her parents and and her other siblings right. um, and like on reflection I'm so glad that they made that yeah. choice because you know right. Australia I think is a place where there are so many opportunities and mm. it's I think it's relatively easy in Australia to um what I call changing stations in life or, or shifting, right. you know, like I, I, I just Reinvent think that it yourself is, or, yeah. yeah, it's just, it's, it's a meritocracy. And it's, I think in a lot of ways, a very level playing field right. and you can be, you know, a daughter of immigrants, yeah. um, and end up, you know, a partner at an international law firm. Whereas I feel like if we had gone, if my parents had gone to the US, I probably wouldn't have had the same mm. opportunities that I had right. in Australia. So, you know, I do feel very, like, lucky that they ended up going to New Zealand right. instead of the US. Because I think my life would be very, very different if they had gone yeah. to I the I mean, US. How, did you, how did you go? Because you, you actually went over or the parents went over and they basically lost everything. So how did you end up getting your education and all those things? Like, 
you know, yeah. all those things lined up. Free education in Australia. I went Is to it? public schools. Wow, yeah. okay. I had no idea. Okay. I went to public schools, um, public primary school, public high school. Funnily enough, um, my high school actually had a direct hotline to the local police station what? because it was in a bit of a, a, a rough neighbourhood. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I was... Um, yeah, public schools, um, and then I started working when I so when I like including high university school, is also paid for by the government as well. Um, university is so you do pay for your university degrees, but right. at the time when I went when I was at university, they had um, just introduced this kind of um, scheme where you were paying university fees, but the fees had gone up a lot. So there were, sure. at the time, there was a lot of kind of, you know, outrage, particularly in the media around yeah. how university fees were increasing. But if you compare it to what people pay in the US, right. it's, you know, a drop in the it's ocean. A drop, yeah, it's like 100000 right now or something crazy. Yeah, like 50, I think I, I paid 000. like $5,000 a year yeah. for my law degree. It's like crazy in yeah. the States. It's, but, it's yeah. um, so, so... You know, I, I think in Australia, again, it's just there's so much infrastructure and there's so much, you know, social support systems right. that it is very easy, even if you don't have a lot of financial means, mm. to you know, find your way and, 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 you know, make your own path to wherever it is that, that you want to go. So I was very lucky. So I, I remember when I finished high school, probably about two or three weeks after my last high school exam, I moved out of home. Um, wow. Yeah, and I started working full-time. High school, like, out, like, 17, 18 years old, you're like... Yeah, 18 years I old, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm moving out, and, like, my parents were... But they never told you, hey, you need to move out, you just made the decision yourself. I just made the decision. They didn't want me to move out, because right. my parents were um, quite traditional and conservative in a lot of ways, so sure. when I was growing up, there was a lot of, well, you can't do X, Y, and Z because you're a girl, yeah. and you should stay home, which used to drive me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, all right, I'm out of here, 18 years old, you're like, I'm legal, I'm leaving. <laughs> um, and so I started working, and I, I was, um, you know, working full-time, studying part-time, and then um, I ended up very randomly taking a job at Allen's, which was one of the big law firms in Australia. And at the time, I didn't even know, I had no idea, you know, what big law firms were. You know, I had no right. idea about, you know, the different types of law firms. And, and, you know, I had really, up until that point in time, had a very, very insular upbringing. Mm. And going to Allen's just opened my eyes to so many different things. It was the first time that I really understood anything about you know not just different law firms and you know big banks in the world of finance but also just the haves and the have-nots right. you know because I'd grown Huge. up I was from the wrong side of the tracks and yeah. I didn't know any better I didn't know I was from the wrong side of the tracks because <laughs> like, I didn't know there was another side <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so and then I got to Allen's and there were all these kids from you know private schools right. and you know their parents were judges on the supreme court right. or like partners at other law firms yeah. and I was like oh wow all of a sudden I had this like this net well epiphany like hey you know there's a huge... There's a whole world out right. there, which I had no idea about. Right. But also, I, I think the flip side of that was it made me feel very self-conscious. Like in a negative... Like an in, inadequate in, a, in yeah, some way. Because right. I just, I looked at myself and I looked at them and I was like... Well, I'm not on. worthy or... I'm, I don't fit in here. Yeah, 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 there were all these kids who were from, you know, these private yeah. private schools. And I was just like, I, I, I really don't 
fit in. And, you know, I got over it and I figured out how to kind of, you know, function and and to fit in. But at the beginning, I was just like, oh, wow, like this is really different. And I had no idea and maybe I don't belong here. Right. And then you got over this imposter syndrome at some point in time, right? I mean, you... I don't know if you get over it. I mean, I still have... I, I still, I think, have a lot of the, you know, the, the, the symptoms that, that people generally mm. characterise with imposter syndrome. So before we were talking and I said, oh, well, I was just lucky, right place, right time. Yeah. And that's how I got into digital assets. But a lot of my friends will say, no, like, that that's silly. Like, actually, you saw an opportunity yeah. and you worked your butt off right. to, you know, get to where you did. Right. But there is a big part of me that just thinks, well, I was just lucky because Mike came to me one day and said, yeah. hey, I want to set up a tokenized fund. Right, right. You know, so, you know, I, I do um, definitely still um, have that fear of, like, being found out because I'm a fraud. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know oh, digital assets, it's not really that hard. You know, anyone can do it. You just have to understand the concept. Right, you right. know, I definitely do have a lot of... Um, you know, I, I think that the challenges that, that mm. come with that, um, and, you know, like when you talk about challenges, I was actually having this conversation just yesterday with a friend, and in a lot of ways, I feel like one of the biggest challenges is actually myself. Yeah. Like I get in my own way because, yeah. you know, when you, I feel like imposter syndrome and also being a perfectionist, it's such a double-edged sword. And one of my you friends, need to be almost like as a lawyer, right? I mean, you, I mean, yeah, well, that's the thing. Yeah. It's tough, right? You yeah. have to be super kind of detail-oriented and organized. And or to be a su- successful lawyer like yourself. I mean, you, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of lawyers that kind of like, oh, whatever. You know? <laughs> well, I guess everyone has different strengths, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Um, but, you know, the thing about perfectionism, it is such a double-edged sword. And my friend always says to me, don't let perfect get in the way of good enough. Right. Because, you know, he always says to me, like, your perfectionism and that pursuit of excellence is the reason why you've had as much success as you've had. But at the same time, right. it's also the thing that really holds you back. That's because right. I'm always too, in a lot of ways, like, sometimes too scared to do something new or to kind of you know, branch out because what if I fail and then yeah. everyone's going to realize that, oh, I'm a fraud yeah, and, you know, I don't yeah. really deserve, right. you know, whatever title or whatever accolade it is sure. that, that has come my way and, you know, I've just been lucky, right place, yeah. right time. So it's, you know, it's, it's challenging, particularly as you become more senior. Yeah. You can't control everything and you can't ensure, there's no way you can ensure that everything is always yeah. perfect Impossible. and it's a real... Um, continuing struggle. I don't know if struggle is the right word, but it's something that you have to work on. I think you have to be very conscious of it. And, you know, when you're making those decisions, and particularly when you're leading a team, be very aware of it so that it doesn't um, get in the way of how you manage the team and making sure that you have a team that, you know, performs, but also giving them autonomy so that they can also grow and creating that kind of environment where they get to feel ownership mm. and autonomy and kind of, you know, develop themselves. So, it's, right. you know, it's, it's a tough thing to balance I sometimes, I think. Yeah, I mean, your own personal development and also the development of your team or your colleagues to... You know, have a, how do you get like a high performance team, right? It's it's a lot of this sort of management 
like where do you see that because obviously you had to build a practice inside of digital assets like you know you had the right to find the almost had to find the right ingredients of the people that and it's not easy right to to find those different types of juniors that are you know one have that domain expertise two have the legal background three have the drive to kind of deliver right so how do you kind of build out your teams and things yeah i mean i think i've been again quite lucky um to to have you know been in a, a lot been in large firms where there are you know quite large talent pools but mm. I, I think you know for me one of the um one of the key things really was making sure that people who joined the team who did the work on digital assets were people who actually had an interest and were dabbling themselves mm. because like honestly the the concepts and the you know the the apps and even the culture it's so different in digital assets to tradfi that i think if you're not actually using it it's very difficult to understand what's actually happening and if you don't understand it you can't advise on it properly um so one of the big things for me really was do you have an interest in it do you kind of trade or do nfts or you know what like to what degree are you kind of um you know involved in the digital assets ecosystem and even if you're if you weren't as long as you had an interest and were happy to put in the time to learn about it that was okay but for anyone who you know sort of said well i don't really believe in it that becomes really difficult because yeah, like, you know you just can't advise on right. it if you don't understand it and yeah. you have to use it to understand right it but also the culture right because i do think that you know the culture and and the fast pace is a little bit different to um what people are used to with traditional finance so yeah. that was definitely that was definitely part of it as well for me yeah because i think it's it's not even just that it's just like you know in technology it's just advancing so quickly as you're not on top of it you're not you're going to miss the boat or you're going to miss something inside of the agreements or whatever yeah, right exactly i mean if you didn't take into account ai's involvement inside of the agreements you're you're kind of like in deep trouble like you're yeah. at least your client is yeah right that type of thing but so yeah i i think uh, it's great i mean it so so as far as the um the different types of uh developments in the market i mean it's mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing what's happening inside of Hong Kong. I mean, we've got, you know, the virtual asset trading platforms coming up. You've got the stable coin consultation. You've also got discussions about uh, spot ETF. What's your views in terms of the markets, you know, uh, in Hong Kong? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, both of us are inside of the uh the task force, like the web3 task force. So, yeah. we have a different view, I would say. Yeah. But I mean, I I I really do think that the future the digital assets in Hong Kong is very bright. I mean even just the fact that the government has a task force and that they've put people like us on it who actually are involved in the industry and you know we have our ear to the ground and we can feedback mm. you know commentary um and and concerns from the broader market I think is you know obviously really really critical. I mean I think that you know obviously there's been a bit of a, a PR campaign in the last kind of 15 or so months um where you know we've really wanted to push Hong Kong as a hub but there hasn't necessarily been um alignment or parity I guess between you know the messaging and sure. what's actually happening on the ground and I think what we're seeing now with a lot of these 
um, developments in terms of, you know, the SFC is issuing new circulars and now they're saying, yes, we're open to spot ETFs and, you know, yes, we have this stablecoin consultation coming in. Yes, we have more licenses being granted for virtual asset trading platforms. I think all of these things, you know, help to kind of narrow that gap between where we want to be and what is actually happening. So I think, you know, I am very optimistic and very kind of positive on the outlook um, for digital assets in Hong Kong. And I think, you know, spot ETFs, I think, in Hong Kong will happen probably pretty quickly in, in the same way that the okay. futures crypto ETFs were approved quite quickly after the SFC had released that um, statement about them. So I, I think, you know, that again is just a game changer because it does mean that we have another familiar safe access point for new people who are probably curious about digital assets but for whatever reason haven't been able or haven't been willing to um, take the plunge and kind of you know go into that directly holding digital assets directly setting up accounts with you know crypto exchanges and whatnot so i do think that is again just you know and another another thing that adds to this narrative that we're at this inflection point and we're on the verge of seeing much broader participation and adoption of digital assets yeah i mean i think um you know the etf like you said is is basically you know a natural wrapper or like a you know a web three asset and a web two wrapper kind of thing right so it makes it a lot easier for people to participate inside of it and i think you know, I think inside of the Web3 task force, you know, just kind of tooting our own horn kind of thing, <laughs> that we did already make that proposal, right? So yeah. I think to the extent that we do represent the markets and the participants inside of it, I think that's really important. Where do you see, um, where do you see the, the sort of like the roadmap of this whole space going inside of that? I mean, of course, we've got those three different uh, big buckets going on right now. But where do you see like 2024 inside of uh, Hong Kong digital assets or in general, like maybe on a global basis? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think for sure, you know, institutional money um, is coming and I think that's going to, you know, really um, drive adoption. I think that another thing that we will see a lot more focus on really is tokenization of assets in particular. And again, this is another thing that the SFC has said in statements they're very focused on you know Singapore government has been focused on tokenization of assets for for quite some time they're kind of not so keen on crypto in general sure. but for tokenization of assets they're you know they're they're very big on that so I do think that you know tokenization is definitely something that we will see gather a lot more momentum I remember in in 2019 going to events and people at the time were saying oh 2019 is going to be the year of stos oh my guys it's 2024 we're still waiting but you know some of those challenges and and the hurdles in terms of distribution channels and secondary trading platforms we are finally starting to see some movement in those so i think that you know as the different parts of the ecosystem which are required to facilitate that build out I, i think we will see um, more more traction on the tokenization front. Um, I think, you know, for Hong Kong, one of the things that I'm really hoping that we see soon is more direction in terms of those licensed trading platforms and how they can mm. offer futures. Because, you know, for us in Hong Kong, obviously we are a, a, a global hub for asset management. You know, we've got a huge pool of hedge fund managers, traditional as well as crypto, 
Um, and for a lot of them, frankly, if they want to be accessing crypto, they need derivatives and futures, right. either for hedging or for their strategies because they're doing you know, arbitrage and you know, high frequency, these sorts of strategies. So you know, the fact that at the moment we have these restrictions where those licensed virtual asset trading platforms aren't able to offer futures and derivatives, mm. I think makes it more challenging because, you know, again, if we go back to those licensed, the SFC licensed asset managers, if they want to be investing in digital assets and they want to have futures, they, of course, need to be using licensed virtual asset course, trading platforms. But, you know, <laughs> so I, I do think that that is, if we can get a regulatory framework for how those are offered, I do think that has the potential to really put Hong Kong on the map, not just for Asian mm. asset managers, but also globally, because there's a real dearth, I think, globally of licensed exchanges that are offering um, derivatives and, and futures for, for crypto assets. I mean, you've got, you know, CME and, and whatnot, but that's just... Um, a small range of products. No one's offering, none of those license exchanges are offering perps, for example, which is right. what all the hedge fund managers really mm. want yes. and need. So yeah. I do think that, you know, that if we can get that part of it right, that's a win-win. That's a win for the asset managers and yes. Hong Kong's status as a, an asset management hub. But it's also a win, I think, for the operators of those trading platforms mm. because that's going to drive a lot more volume and um, trading activity on those exchanges. So that is something which I hope that, you know, we can get to, to grips with quickly. Yeah, because it's, it's essentially, I mean, you having, you know, one product or, you know, one tool in the toolkit versus like 10, right? Because, I mean, it really to be a, a full uh, sort of trading opportunity for a lot of the institutionals is to have a comprehensive set of uh, products and features that you could do, right? Because otherwise you can't hedge, you can't do a lot of different things, so yeah. it's difficult. Yeah. Um, what's your take on the uh, the Bitcoin ETF, you know, in the States or here as well? I mean, if there's, you know, what's your view as far as, you know, are we going to see an approval soon? <laughs> 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 or is it, you know, are we just kind of like, you know, five years later, we're still kind of waiting for it? Or what's your take? I, I think that based on you know, I guess what we've seen in the past yeah. with the SFC in terms of, you know, they issued their statement at FinTech Week to say, hey, we're open to, to crypto futures ETFs. Yes. And literally a month or two later, they were approving the first. Right. So I, I think that, you know, likely we will see some kind of movement um, from the SFC on that front in, in the next couple of months, I would expect, particularly because, you know, one of the key concerns around spot ETFs really has been like market manipulation sure. and the veracity of those exchanges that the asset managers are using. Here in Hong Kong, if we're saying, well, actually, crypto spot ETF, you're going to be using the Hong Kong licensed exchanges, which, which the SFC is already regulating and they're right. already comfortable that they have very robust market surveillance mm. um, and other systems in place to ensure that there isn't any market manipulation. I think that addresses 
um, one of the the main concerns that they've had. And obviously, there's a lot of issues around volatility and disclosure and sure. you know investor protection and whatnot. But I, I do think that you know that being a ma- market surveillance and market manipulation being a major hurdle sure. that has been addressed because we, we we now can say, well, actually. We'll just use the Hong Kong licensed exchanges because we know mm. they have proper systems in place. So I do think that in Hong Kong, um, you know, I, I would be very, very surprised if we don't see something um, happening on that front, you know, soon as in, in in the next kind of, you know, two or three months at most. Right. right. I think US, who knows? But obviously, I mean, everyone <laughs> in the, not everyone, but, you know, a lot of people are, are kind of, expecting um, something from the SEC, you know, in the next couple of days. I think 10 January is yeah. the deadline. Yeah. So, you know, I know there was a big a big move in the market uh, last <laughs> week when someone took a contrarian view, which was quite yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, but, Major yeah. sport, folks. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that and everyone's like, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> what are you kidding me? It was like drops. Yeah. Yeah, three or four grand or, or something like this. Yeah. But uh, what are your, so we're at the front end of 2024. Mm. What are, let's say, three to, I'm not going to go 10, 20, or like three to five basically predictions for virtual assets, digital asset space. I mean, what do you see on the radar screen? Um, Well, for sure, more institutions coming into crypto in in a big way this year. And, you know, I, I think really, again, coming back to the ETFs, that, I think is is really a, a big gateway, I would say, for right. institutions. Um, I think that you know we will continue to see this evolution and, and maturation of the regulatory framework. I mean, I know here in Hong Kong we've obviously got stablecoin regime coming in. Yeah. Um, I, I think we can expect to see or hear more from the regulator on some of the things which people have been. Um, asking about or commenting on, but which sure. they haven't directly addressed. So I, I, I think, you know, that is definitely um, something that that will continue. And I would hope that we start to see a bit more um, consistency in approach. I, I think, you know, the market... The market the, coordination, you mean? Yeah, or, okay. I think that you know the approach that different regulators and, and different countries take. It's very fragmented, sure. right? You've got you know quite a big, um, quite a diverse range of different approaches that that different regulators are taking, and that frankly makes it very challenging, right? We do need to have some degree of consistency um, as much as we can. So I, I hope that this year we start to see a little bit more cohesion sure. in terms of, you know, the, the, the approach that different um, regulators are, are taking right. to things. Final question. Mm-hmm. Price prediction, Bitcoin, <laughs> end of 2024. What is it? December 31st, 2024, what's the price? Oh, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> That's so hard. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a bull. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to say 100K. 100K? That's not bullish enough. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> there are people saying like 500. Yeah. Like, oh, no. <laughs> You're more of a bear. No. <laughs> but that's cool. I mean, yeah, I think everybody's uh, looking at 2024 as like the year, right? With the halving and everything yes. like that. And then ETFs, spot ETFs yeah. and so forth. So. Well, what's your prediction? My prediction is, uh, no, I mean, I think it's going to probably be in the six-figure space. But I, I don't know whether it's at the five or the one or the... <laughs> 
<laughs> Whatever, I don't know, but <laughs> I'll stick with yours. I'm gonna go with yours. Yeah. I think it's a little bit more conservative. I would yeah. say. But cool. Yeah. Hey, Joy, it's been fantastic having you here, and thanks a lot for coming in. And congratulations on the new role. I, I think it's been Thank awesome you. to hear like your whole personal story and the whole journey. So, uh, you know, continued success, of course, and uh, keep us on top of. Uh, you know your your uh, mind as we go along inside of this next tw uh, next twelve months. Yeah. Thanks very so, much for having me. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah, it's been awesome. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Neil. Thanks. Thank you.